if you're new to this church, what we've been doing is there's four Living Stones churches all across northern Nevada. Next year, we're going to have another one in South Reno. And each one of the pastors has been videoing uh, or doing a, a video, and then that's been shown at all the churches. So that was our video. And now you guys get me twice today with a sermon. So um, open your Bibles up to Romans chapter 7. And we're going to be talking about what we just saw in the video. Now, if you're a guest with us or you're not a Christian or you're somebody investigating God uh, and you don't own a Bible, you're welcome to take one of the Bibles that we said around the room home with you. And you can open up that Bible with you right now. And it's uh, on page 943 in those Bibles that we said around the room. And if you're new to the Bible, there's going to be big numbers and little numbers. The big numbers are the chapters and the little numbers are the verses. And we're in Romans chapter 7, verse 7 today. So we are talking about this concept that we just saw in the video. And it can be summarized like this. The struggle is real. The struggle is real, y'all. It's real. But Christ is victorious. And um, this letter of Romans, it it was a letter written by a guy named Paul, and he was writing to the Roman church. And... Uh, he, he's writing them in this section to personally identify with them to show them that there, that there is a struggle within everybody who becomes a Christian, but that there is a hope and the hope is in Jesus. Uh, the struggle is real, but Christ is victorious. You see, when you become a Christian, uh, John says that you become born again. God's spirit comes into your dead heart and makes you alive to the things of God and he takes up residence in your heart. But even though you now have the spirit of God within you as a Christian, a desire to break God's commands called sin is still within you also. And so now you have a dual residence going on in your house. You know, sometimes you may feel like you have this with your roommates. You have one roommate, the spirit of God, who wants to obey God's commands, but then you have another roommate the flesh, your sinful nature, who hates God. And they're at war with one another and the struggle is real. One of my favorite things as a Christian is I get to watch people uh, encounter God and I get to watch their lives change. It's really a a really special gift. Um, And a lot of times, and I know this isn't always the case, but a lot of times when somebody meets God, they immediately, like everything changes. They immediately become on fire for God. You guys know what I'm talking about, church? Like, they're just pursuing him with everything that they are. They're devouring the Bible. They turn from all their old lifestyle, and they're just giving themselves wholeheartedly to God. And it seems like everything is so easy. And as a pastor, I just kind of sit back and I wait because I know that they're just a ticking time bomb. I know that the Spirit of God is sneaking around just waiting to stand up and sucker punch them right in the nose. I know that sin is about to make war against them. And um, you see, this is important for us to realize. We need to admit that there's a struggle because if you don't ever admit that there's a struggle, you won't admit your need for Christ. A lot of people talk about Christianity like this. They say it will make your life easier. They say that when you become a Christian, you become a champion and that you are victorious in all things and that when you become a Christian, you can basically walk on water, but that is not true. The Bible preaches a much different message. And actually, if you read the Bible and you're, you're honest with yourself in your own experience of being a Christian, 
you would admit that being a Christian often feels more like walking in a desert than it does dancing on a mountaintop. It feels a lot more like barely treading water than it does walking on water. And it feels a lot more like being in a grueling boxing match than it does sitting at the winner's banquet. The struggle is real, y'all. And there's a lot of hope just in admitting that there is a struggle. Because in the midst of this struggle is where we find our Christ. It's where we find our Lord. And so we're going to look at this from a few different angles today. We're going to look at the struggle's source, which is sin. The struggle's feeling, which is, it's a feeling of war. And then we're going to look at the struggle's victor, which is Christ. So first of all, verse 7. Now, whenever you're in the middle of a struggle, we have this desire to want to point the finger at someone, don't we? Who's to blame? And as Paul's been describing what's going on, uh, the church in Rome started to say, well, maybe God's to blame. Maybe his laws and commands are to blame. And so Paul has to address this in verse 7. He asks the question, what then shall we say, that the law of God is sin? By no means. Now, if you're new to the Bible, you're going to encounter this word law a lot in the New Testament. And what the law means, it's God's standard and perfect expectation for humanity. It's, It's God's beautiful way. It's what he commands us to do. In the Old Testament, there were 613 laws that God gave to the nation of Israel. And then when Jesus came, he gave us all of his commands. It's God's beautiful way to live. That's what God's law is. But in the previous paragraph, the Apostle Paul just said that we no longer as Christians have a marriage relationship with God's law. And that's actually good news. Because our marriage relationship with God's law was a dysfunctional relationship. And there's two reasons why. The first reason why it's dysfunctional is because God's law commands you what to do, but it doesn't empower you to do it. It tells you, do not lie, but it doesn't help you not lie. It tells you, do not commit adultery, but it doesn't help you not lust. It tells us what to do, but it gives us no power to do it. And because of that, the law of God is perfect, and it only points out how messed up you really are. Now imagine being married to a perfect spouse. I know that's a leap. Imagine being married to a perfect spouse and the only thing that they do is point out how wrong you are. Does that sound like a healthy relationship? No. And that's that's our bad relationship with God's law. And so thankfully, as Christians, we're no longer married to God's law. We're married to a better bride. Or excuse me, we're the bride. We're married to a better groom, Jesus. And, as, and Jesus is, is, is a spouse who doesn't just point out your flaws, he seeks to heal them. He seeks to help you with them, and he seeks to identify you with, with you in the midst of them. Okay, so first of all, the law, our marriage relationship is bad because it only points out our flaws. The second reason why is our marriage relationship with the law only arouses sin within us. The word sin can be summed up in one word, rebellion. Rebellion to God. What happens when you give a rebellious person a rule? They break it. Parents, if you tell your children, don't eat the gum, and then you walk away out of the room, there's a good chance that you're going to come back to no gum. (laughs) Because there's rebellion within us. And in the same way, 
Sin is within, residing within all of us and it's seeking an opportunity to break God's good commands. And so when God gives a command, sin says, ooh, this is a good opportunity to break it. And so Paul is saying, we are no longer bound in marriage to the law. And that's a good thing. We're instead bound to Jesus. And so naturally, the, the question that people were asking was this, well, then is the law sin? Is the law itself bad? And Paul says, by no means, not a chance. God forbid the law of God is good. And he says in the second half of verse seven, he says, yet if, I had not, if it had not been for the law, I would not known, have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. And so he says, God's commands is good because it tells us what's right and wrong. And he uses the 10th example, or 10th commandment as an example, do not covet. Be satisfied with what you have. And he says, I wouldn't have known that that was bad unless God had revealed this is bad. In verse eight, he says, but sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness for apart from the law, sin lies dead. Did you catch that language? He says, the sin with us is looking to seize an opportunity to take advantage of us. That's what sin is doing. It's, it's seizing an opportunity to take advantage of us through the commandments of God. And so what this looks like is this, is when God gives a good command, sin perverts that good command into a temptation. It's a perversion. So the problem isn't God's law. The problem is the sin within us. And he continues on. In verse 9, he says, I once was alive from... Apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. And so what he's getting at here is in the Old Testament, God said, like, for instance, in Leviticus 18.5, that if you obey these commands, you will surely live. Implying the opposite also is true, that if you break them, you will surely die. And so it's, and Paul just kind of laughing at himself. He's like, isn't that funny? The command that promises us life, if you do this, you will surely live actually proves to be death to us because we continue to fall short of obedience. And so then he says again in uh, verse 11, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and, command, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. He's saying the problem is not with the law. The law is good. The problem is with our sin. And again, he uses that language. It seizes the opportunity to deceive us. Sin deceives us in two ways. The first way is it tells you this. Breaking God's commands on this or that, it's not really that big of a deal. It's no big deal. But that doesn't make any sense. Because the measure of our sin has nothing to do with the action. It has everything to do with the one whom we sin against. And because we have a massive God, the God of the universe, when you break his commands, there's no such thing as a little sin. It's always a gigantic sin because you're sinning against the God of the universe. And then the second way that sin will try to deceive you is that it will tell you that you need to break this command if you truly want to be happy or if you truly want to be satisfied or if you truly want to have joy. And this affects every arena of our life, doesn't it? Sin is trying to deceive us in every arena of our life. Like, you will be happy if you spend more time on yourself and you focus less on others. 
You will be happy if you use your money to buy that thing that you want, that you don't need, that you can't afford, instead of being generous to God and his kingdom. You will be happier if you take sexuality into your own hands and you, you participate in sexuality how you want instead of how God designs it. After all, that was written so long ago, it doesn't even apply today. You will be happy if you concern yourself with you and just your family and not the plights of the downtrodden and the broken and the addicted. You will be happy if you try to take this matter into control in your own hands because you can't trust God. He doesn't care. Sin is always trying to deceive us that we're gonna be happier if we break God's commands than if we obey them. But we know from experience what happens when we break God's commands. Does it make us happy? No, it's a little fun, but it always leaves us empty. Always leaves us empty. And so Paul says in verse 12, the summary of the problem is not God's law. What's the source of our struggle? It's not God's fault. It's the sin within us. Think of it like this, a speed limit sign. Like uh, the one going out here on the way to Wingfield Springs, 45 miles an hour. The sign itself is not bad. It's not evil. You might think it's stupid, but it's not evil. The sign itself is not bad. In fact, the sign was put there by people who developed the road and know the amount of traffic that drove on it. And it's put there with the public's best interest in mind. That they know with how many cars go on there that if you follow the speed limit at this, this rate, there's probably going to be less accidents and hopefully less deaths, right? So it's not the sign's fault. The fault is the rebellion in, inside of our hearts. And the rebellion inside of our hearts causes us to look at the sign either as a, as a nuisance to be ignored or as a challenge to be conquered. <laughs> we say to that sign, what gives you the right? How dare you try to tell me how to live my life? I'm going to go this speed. But the problem is, it's not, it's not the sign, it's, it's our hearts. And it's the same thing with us and God. We look at God's commands and it has nothing to do with his commands. It has everything to do with our rebellious hearts. And the tragedy is, is that we look to God as the king of the universe and we say, how dare you tell me how to live my life? That's what the essence of sin is. And that's, that's what sin is trying to do. That's why the struggle is so tough because we have God's spirit within us as a Christian who wants to be obedient to God. But then we have the sin and flesh within us that wants to tell God off. Get, take another example with, between a parent and a child. A parent gives their children rules. At least good parents give their children rules that they should live by. Do your homework before you play. Pick up your mess. Don't throw trash on the floor. Clean your room. Come home at this curfew. Don't do drugs. And as children, a lot of the time, we're like, my parents don't get me. They're against my personal happiness. They're being overbearing and unfair. But then eventually as a child you grow up and you realize the problem wasn't with your parents' rules. The problem was with you, especially when you have kids. <laughs> you realize the problem was with not your parents' rule. The problem was with your rebellious heart. And the same thing with us. And that's what Paul's trying to get us to see. Do you see that God's laws and God's heart is good? He's good. Do you really believe it? On a prayer drive this week, Pastor Gavin and I were praying for our city. 
And he said a prayer that really hit me. And he said, a lot of people, God, they say, we're okay with you being king. Just don't interfere with my life. And today is Christ the King Sunday. The last Sunday in the church calendar where we acknowledge that we're only here because we have a good king. And as a good king, you don't get to tell God, I want you to be king, but just leave me alone. When he's king, he has rights to everything in your life. And that's what it means to be a Christian. That's why we call Jesus our Lord. And then so Paul's trying to understand, get us to understand, do you see that God is a good king? You are a bad king of your life. You lead your life into all kinds of mess. Jesus is a good king. The second thing that Paul wants us to see in this section is do you understand how bad your condition really is? You're messed up, and so am I. We all are. We don't have a sin problem in that we just do this little bad thing here or do this little bad thing here. We let sin get the best of us. We have a sin problem in that sin is a malignant cancer deep inside our veins. It's affecting everything about who we are. And because that's true, we don't need some tips for a better life. We don't need a pep talk. We don't need some more rules for success. And you don't need a back rub. And preachers need to stop preaching that junk. You need a savior. We all need a savior. We need a doctor. We need a savior. We need a God bigger than our problems because we can't fix ourselves. The struggle's real. So Paul's trying to get us to admit the struggle. And then he says, here's what the struggle feels like. It feels like war. Doesn't it, church? Don't you feel like you're at war every day? For me, particularly on Mondays and Saturdays, the day before and after worship. I feel like I'm at war. Verse 13, Paul continues, says, did that which is good then bring death? By no means. So the church is saying, wait a second. Okay, if God's law is good and its law says, if I break the law, it, it, it dooms me to death. How is that which is good, is that which is good causing me to die? And Paul says, no, it's not the law's fault that caused you to die. It's sinned. Sin is the reason for death, not the law. He continues in verse 14. He says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. So here the apostle Paul uses those two words, flesh and spirit. Um, The word spirit, uh, I think what Paul, he he was a Hebrew guy. He was a Jewish guy. And I think he's referring to the Old Testament. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And the Hebrew understanding of the word spirit is the same word as the word breath. Same word as the word breath. And so what he's saying is the law comes straight from the spirit. It comes from the breath of God. Where does God's commands come from? His breath. And then he's contrasting that with flesh. And I think what he's calling us to do is think about Genesis chapter two when God created the first humans. When God created Adam, he took the dust from the earth and he formed it. And then what did he do? He breathed life into Adam. And so God's intention for humanity is that we would have bodies, but we would live by God's breath. We'd live by God's breath. But to be considered just flesh is to have bodies, but want to live life without God's spirit. That's what it means. So it'd be like Paul saying, you see that corpse right there? It has flesh, but there's no breath in it. And that's what it means to to live in the flesh. It means to live a life opposed to God, a life that doesn't want God and his rules. It means to live a life in a sinful nature. Some of your Bibles will translate sinful nature. And he says, the law is spiritual. It's good. 
but we're of the flesh. We have this war going on. And so look at what he says in verse 15. Now I want everybody to read this together. Pick up your Bibles. We're going to read this together. And what I want you to see here is the Apostle Paul identifying with us. Okay? He changes how he speaks. He starts talking about his own struggle. He says, for I do not understand my own actions. Anybody been there? For I do not do what I want to do, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see my members, another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Now Paul is preaching, isn't he, church? He goes from just telling them what's up and then he just starts preaching. My wife calls these the doo-doo verses because he says, I do not do what I want to do and the things I do want to do, I do not do. And it makes me feel like (laughs) doo-doo. And there's a really good reality to that. Paul is preaching. He says in verse 15, I don't understand my own actions. You've been a Christian for 30 seconds and you know that. He says, I don't do the thing I want to do, which is obey God's law, but because of the flesh, I do the thing I hate, which is break God's law. He says in verse 17, but it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Can you identify with that? He's saying, even as I'm sinning, I know that it's not me. That's not who I am in Christ anymore. In Christ, I want to follow God, but that's my old self. That ain't me anymore, but I keep on doing it. Then he says in verse uh, 19, he, he says, uh, or excuse me, he says in verse um, 19, I do not do the good I want. I keep on doing evil. And then again in verse 20, he says, it's not me, but the sin that dwells in me. And I want you to see there for something, something that Paul is doing. He's not embarking in a moment of self-hatred. There's a real temptation for a lot of Christians, if you give into this pattern of sin, you, you have this tendency to go to self-hatred. But that's a, that's a form of negative pride. And you say, I'm worthless, blah, blah, blah. No, you're not. You're a child of God. You're valued by God so much he was willing to die for you. You're God's treasure. You're God's beloved. The problem is not how horrible you are. The problem is sin within you. And so Paul doesn't have self-hatred, he has sin-hatred. And that's the appropriate view on sin. Sin-hatred. And so in verse 21, he says, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Every time as Christians we take a step towards God, sin is crouching tiger, hidden dragon, sneaking, just waiting to pounce on us. Waiting to take advantage of us. You feel it. You know this is why it's such an internal battle. And then in verse 22, he says, For I delight in the law of God, my inner being, but I see my members another law waging war 
against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Now just think of this. Paul is writing to a Roman church who really understood war. Rome understood war. And back then, you didn't have planes and stuff. It was ugly. It was hand-to-hand combat. There were swords and blood and fiery balls going through the sky, just blowing up forests. It was ugly. And Paul says, that's what it feels like in our hearts. Because this war is real. The struggle is real. So he says, wretched man that I am in the flesh, who will deliver me from this body of sin? The struggle's real. Um, we were talking about this in my community group this week. And there's a girl, Scarlett Blackwell. She said, this passage reminds me of when an addict gets clean, he's sitting at the table and then a needle gets presented in front of him. Like, so the addict is there looking at the needle saying, that's not me anymore. But the needle seems to be talking back saying, you know you want this. And then you just have this, like it can really cause a lot of problems. And anybody who has any, had any sort of addiction knows what I'm talking about. But here's the thing, we all are addicted to sin. We're addicted to walking our way instead of God's way. And so that's why it feels so real. It's this struggle within us. And when you read what Paul is saying, you can really identify with what he's saying. I mean, when I was thinking about it this week, I'm like, man, this just hits home for me. As a man who wants to follow God, I don't want to lust. I don't want to be greedy. I don't want to be apathetic to the suffering of the downtrodden because it's too uncomfortable to think about. I don't want to be irritable. I don't want to be angry when I'm inconvenienced. I don't want to be insecure. I don't want to seek approval. I don't want to be defensive all the time. I don't want to be overbearing. I don't want to be jealous. I don't want to be a man who stands up every week and says, give glory to God, but internally I'm saying, give glory to me. I don't want to be that guy. And in Christ, I'm not, but because of sin, I am. It sucks. The struggle is real. Do you feel the struggle, Christian? There's two wrong approaches to this text. The first approach to this text is to say, well, everybody struggles, I'm just going to give into it. And then the second wrong approach to this text is to say, this used to be a problem for me, but it's not anymore. So the first one is, well, I I guess everybody struggles, none of us are perfect, might as well give into this life of sinning. But that doesn't make sense, because listen, every time you sin, you're turning your back on God. And if you're somebody who wants to be close with God, you can't be close with God and turn your back on him at the same time. So you can't just give in. And then secondly, this used to be a problem for me. Look at me. Are you kidding me? For real. I talk to so many older saints and it breaks my heart. Because the tendency of older saints is to, they read this passage and they don't think about themselves. They think about the young person sitting next to them. And they say, that used to be me, pastor, but not anymore. We all have a tendency to think that the longer we're Christians, the easier the struggle gets. But this passage shows us that's not true. I mean, this is written by the apostle Paul, for goodness sake. He's way better Christian than all of us combined. Planted more churches, wrote most of the New Testament, gave his life wholly to the work of the Lord, and he calls himself a wretched man. The opposite, you know, and you know why it's not true? Because if you think that the longer you're a Christian, the easier the struggle gets, it means this, that the longer you're a Christian, the less you'll need Jesus. 
And that's a, that's a reality that I don't wish on anybody. The opposite is actually true. The longer you're a Christian, the more aware of God's holiness you become. And the more aware of your sinfulness you become. And that leaves a bigger gap between you and God. And you need a bigger savior. So the longer you are a Christian, the more you should need Jesus. The longer you're a Christian, the more you should uh, stop judging other people because you're so consumed with how much you actually need God. That's the appropriate thing. And I love how the Apostle Paul leads us as a community in this. He's their apostle. And he's leading them in vulnerability. He shares with them his struggle. He shares with them his sins. And he cries out, wretched man that I am. Because he knows that if he doesn't get that into the light, sin grows in the dark. And so look at me for a moment. There's many of us sitting in this room and you know you have this pattern of doing something that God doesn't want for you and you're keeping it in the dark. But sin grows in the dark. You need to find some brothers and sisters. That's what our community groups at this church are for. So you can expose your struggle because it's only in the light that you can find healing and strength and prayer and your brothers and sisters can speak the gospel into your life. You need to do that this week if that's you. And Paul shows us that. And the reason why he shows us that is because he knows that the victory does not lie in him. The victory lies in Christ. He says in verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus is going to deliver us from the He doesn't say, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? Ah, I got to get my act together. I mean, that's what I do. Whenever I screw up really bad or give into a pattern of sin, I like get out my list and say, okay, here's all the 15 ways I'm not gonna do that again. Paul doesn't go there. Where he goes, he says, who's gonna deliver me? Jesus. And remember, Paul is a Christian writing to Christians. And he's saying, you know what you still need? Jesus. Jesus isn't just a message for those who don't know Jesus. Jesus is a message for those who do. He says, the same Jesus who came and died for your sin, bearing sin's penalty, and the same Jesus who resurrected out of death, giving you power over sin, is the same Jesus who's going to come one day and rid you of sin. The first time that Jesus came, Jesus dealt with forgiving our sins. But the second time that Jesus is going to come, he deals with ridding us of our sin. You see, and if you're new to the Bible, that's what you need to know that the story of the Bible is about. This much of the Bible is about God promising that he's gonna send a savior to come and deal with sin. And then in the middle of it, you have this story of Jesus and that's where we see Jesus uh, living a righteous life and, and dying on the cross for our sins and resurrecting to give us power over sin. But in the meantime, we struggle. And then at the end of the book, we see Jesus coming back and ridding the world of sin altogether. And so Paul is saying, as a Christian, what you need to do in the midst of the struggle is you need to do two things. You need to look back and you need to look forward. You need to look back to what Jesus has done for you. And remember that no matter how many times you screw up, you're still forgiven. And then you need to look forward to what Jesus is gonna do for you. Because one day he's coming again. And this struggle will be ended. The struggle's real, but it's not forever. One day it's gonna be ended when he comes back. And so we look forward to that day. We don't look into ourselves. And the other thing that Paul surrounds this text with is he reminds us that we're not alone. 
Now, if you look at back at verse six of chapter seven, and if you look to verse 13 of chapter eight, Paul says two things. He says that we are with, that, that God's spirit is with us. He says that when Jesus ascended to heaven, he gave us his Holy Spirit. So in verse uh, six, it says that we no longer walk according to the way of the written code, which is a law. We now serve in the way according to the spirit, God's spirit within us. The same spirit that resurrected Jesus from the dead and empowered his life and ministry is in you if you believe in Christ. Now that's mind blowing. The same spirit who calmed the storm at Jesus' command is in you to calm the storm in your own heart. The spirit of God is with us. Uh, In verse 13 uh, of chapter eight, Paul says, it's by the spirit that we put to death the deeds of the flesh. So you you aren't left in the midst of the struggle hopeless. You have God's spirit to help you. You can get better by God's spirit. You can. And then in Galatians 5, which is another text where Paul says something similar, he says, if you uh, live by the spirit, then also walk by the spirit. And so this is a call for us to remember two things. It's a call for us to remember that there is a light at the end of the tunnel and that we're not alone. You know, when you're struggling or you're suffering or you're at war, you can get through just about anything if you know there's a light at the end of the tunnel and you know you're not alone. And that's what Paul is saying. Many of us have had friends who have cancer or you might be in this room and you have cancer. And some of the people that I've talked to that have gone through cancer and they've gone through the chemo and the radiation and all the ugliness that it involves, and I ask them, what got you through? They say this. They said, well, there's two things that got me through. The first thing was knowing that if I did this treatment, I could be cured and I could have some more life. There was a light at the end of the tunnel. And then the second thing that got me through is in my ugliest moments, I wasn't alone. My spouse was there. My brother was there. My sister was there. I had friends from the church who showed up to sit with me while I did the chemo treatments. I wasn't alone. And because of those two things, I could get through. And that's what Paul is saying to you. And that's what I want to say to you as your pastor. Struggling brothers and sisters, you are not alone. You have God's Holy Spirit in you. And the cool thing about God's spirit, it says in Philippians 1, it says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You know what that means? That God's spirit knows all of your mess and he won't leave you. He ain't going nowhere. (laughs) He's with you. And isn't that what your heart wants more than anything? To be loved in such a way where all your flaws are revealed and the other person is still faithful to you? That's what you have in God's spirit. And then the other thing that I want to tell you, struggling brothers and sisters, is this, is there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Either you will die or Jesus will come back. And as a Christian, if you die, you will immediately go to be in the presence of the Lord. And you will be rid from sin altogether. Or Jesus is going to come back and it's going to be even better. And I'm just going to come on my front porch and say, take me, Jesus. And at that moment, where our, our whole bodies, it says that God's going to renew everything, including your sinful bodies. And we'll have bodies that aren't affected or tainted with the cancer of sin any longer. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. And you might say, well, when's he coming back? I don't know if I could trust him. Well, listen, if God in Jesus fulfilled 300 promises from the Old Testament in his first coming, which is true, You can trust that he's going to fill this one promise in the second coming. (laughs) He's coming back. And this is why the early church, whenever they said bye to each other, they said this word, Maranatha. Everybody say Maranatha. Maranatha. 
It means come quickly, Lord Jesus. And so that's our hope, Christians. And listen, Christians, let's have a little family talk. We need to stop telling the world that the hope is in us. We need to start telling the world that the hope is in Maranatha, him coming back again. And so if you're not a Christian, do you see your struggle and your sin? Do you know that you're enslaved to this broken way of living? You cannot save yourself. You don't need some more tips for a better life. You need a savior. And the good news is that Jesus has given himself for you. So believe in him today. Accept him today. Enter the struggle with us. And if you've been a Christian for a long time or if you're just a brand new Christian right now, I encourage you to do what Psalm 46 says, which is this. Believe in God today. And let God be your refuge and strength, your very present help in a time of trouble. Amen. The struggle is real, but Christ is victorious.